0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Well, welcome to Afternoon Light. And today we are speaking to Stephen Chavura, who's a senior lecturer at Campion College in Sydney in the history faculty. And he's also the author of The Forgotten Menzies, the world picture of Australia's longest serving prime minister, which he co-wrote with Professor Greg Malewish. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Steve.
1: Thank you, Georgina. It's really great to be on the show. Well,
0: I really enjoyed reading your book, Forgotten Menzies. I thought it was a an absolute essential reading for anyone who professes to understand Menzies' worldview and political ideology, particularly as it pertains to the Liberal Party, the party that he founded in 1944. So I thought I would start by asking you and opening our discussion by talking about what how would you characterize uh, Sir Robert Menzie's political philosophy? There are a lot of tropes about how he's a conservative or he is a liberal. and of course, when he was reflecting in his memoirs, I think in afternoon light just after he left politics, he he talked about his political philosophy and why, He had chosen the name Liberal when forming the Liberal Party, not conservative or nationalist or some of the other names bandied about. But he said we chose the name Liberal because we were determined to be a progressive party, willing to make make experiments, in no sense reactionary, but believing in the individual, his rights and his enterprise. So was he a liberal? Was he a conservative? Is that even a valid question when talking about Menzies' political philosophies, Dave?
1: It's definitely a valid question, and it's the question that uh, Greg and I set out to to answer in this book. Now, that, that quote that you just said uh, about Menzies calling it a, a liberal party and not a conservative party – that is a very well-known quote and certainly you know Menzies did say that he he does certainly seem to have seen himself as something of a liberal uh, but we we also need to remember that also in that same book when he's r- sort of remembering back to his childhood when he would debate, socialism with his father with his uh, uncle john sampson and how goodness how many children can say that they debated socialism with their uncles so we're already seeing as a young as a boy that menzies was a pretty extraordinary human being
0: and his uncle he, was he, a socialist sort of, wasn't he he was in the left of yes he was and yeah yeah which is that's quite, that's
1: that's right i don't uh, think well
0: known he, about he, menzies i mean people will see him mm. as coming from a um, a conservative family a, a, a scots mm. presbyterian family but actually his his mother's family had some had some less conservative elements in it didn't
1: it <laughs> that's right i mean yeah for for, for the day i mean the, the less conservative elements would also have still been sort of socially and morally quite conservative but in terms of economic policy in terms of sort of Views on capitalism, industrial relations, yeah, uh, the other side of Menzies' family yeah, was um, yeah, what we might call left-leaning or socialistic. But it's interesting that, that Menzies, in that particular autobiography, writes, you know, even looking back, I, I suppose I was an instinctive conservative, and he writes conservative with a capital C, I think, So the point that we need to bear in mind is that Menzies seems to have seen himself as something of both a a liberal conservative or a conservative liberal. And so in terms of, you know, what his ideology was, well, first, Menzies wouldn't like to even suggest that he had an ideology. And in some ways, maybe he wasn't all that ideological. When we call Menzies a, a conservative liberal or a liberal conservative, the best way to understand that is not by, say, picking up a modern textbook of political ideologies and looking up the definitions of those terms, but, but really going deep into Menzies' own thinking, his own writing, and, and into his into the cultural background that produced him, and, and sort of look at what those terms often meant, but also just, you know, what Menzies himself seemed to say and believe about the, the key issues of liberalism and conservatism, things like freedom, things like rights, uh, things like tradition, and and what we see is that that Menzies uh, was was very much a great admirer of the the English sort of Whig conservative Edmund Burke. Uh, Menzies was a great admirer of Burke, and and you know Burke in his in his own day well we, we we remember him now as sort of a, a sort of a great conservative, but in his own day he, he was a member of the Whig party he was not a Tory uh, he believed in sort of emancipation for Catholics and these at the time were what we might nowadays call fairly progressive policies but at the same time uh, Burke had a strong aversion and suspicion against being overly sort of philosophical and idealistic about one's politics. He thought that this could could lead to really dangerous consequences, like, say, the French Revolution, obviously. So so Menzies was very fond of Edmund Burke, quoted Burke a lot, which a lot of Australians historically have done. But uh, central to uh, Menzies' way of thinking about society and politics was just the the idea of Englishness or Britishness. Yeah. And, And this is something that's often forgotten, that one of the most powerful ways of thinking about politics and society in Australian history is neither best expressed by referring to liberalism or conservatism or even socialism, it's best expressed by referring to just this term Britishness, mm. that throughout Australian history, and certainly Menzies grew up in this milieu, the, the the great project really was to retain as much of what was great about the British heritage, while at the same time honouring the unique situation that Australians are in here on this great continent, sparsely populated and that sort of thing. And so if there's one word I would say really sort of captured Menzies' way of thinking, it was kind of like probably sort of Britishness. And of course, you know, Britishness meant different things to different people, but for Menzies, Britishness was really about Sort of a, a love of liberty, tempered with uh, an emphasis on duties. Uh, it was the idea that you know belo- that sort of beneath holding up all civilization is is a kind of general Christianity, a, a trust in long-standing institutions, you know, a distrust of enthusiastic ideology and things like that. And it's what. Many historians have in the past called cultural puritanism. Mm. just one last thing about that that is really interesting about Menzies and I've only sort of just been thinking about this is that most people sort of say that the great tension lies between liberty and equality. whereas for Menzies, when you really read Menzies, for Menzies the great the great balance needs to be between freedom and, and rights and liberty and our duties to one another yes. for menzies Social life is really duty-centric. It's about our duties to one another, but duties that we take up out of a feeling of obligation to our fellow, our fellow man and woman, not duties imposed on us by the state.
0: Yes, I, I think that um, sense of, of duty as, a, as actually a public good as something that, that you don't feel is, is a, an onerous burden but that is something that is part of being a member of a society, of a community, um, is something that's all pervasive in Menzie's worldview. But I just wanted to, to go back a bit to, to your talking about Menzies' sense of Britishness and that that was almost sort of underlying his political principles. And I think he's quite clear when he talks about the Liberal Party not having an ideology per se, but having a set of principles and the principles that he's thought long and hard about and that he is unwavering on. The response to various issues and events as they come up might change depending on the facts as they change, but but his principles are unwavering. But Menzies is, is often characterized as an Anglophile, you know, British to his boot heels. Uh and and, and you know, some on probably the left side of politics would, would say that in a in a derogatory way, that he was he was too much of a of a of an Anglophile and you know, loved the mother country despite all its all its ills and uh and you know, a, a staunch monarchist. But you're saying and your book's saying that it's not just admiring the Queen or the monarchy or the English language, British heritage and history and, and of course, the institutions that we inherited, that there's actually a worldview, a philosophical approach that is inherited from from Britain that that really shapes Menzies' worldview, which I I think is is less well understood. And, of course, you, you then in the book talk about, as you just said before, cultural Puritanism, and then you talk about this sort of idea of him as also embodying British idealism, which is a strand of the idealist movement, um, philosophical movement. Could you unpack for me what it was, why Menzies is a cultural Puritan, that sort of, um, Mm. I guess, interaction between his his Scottish Presbyterian Protestant roots, but also that, that commitment to... Political liberty in Britain—you know—that sort of idea that you're self-reliant, you're independent, mm-hmm. but you care about your fellow man and woman, and you accept that you're part, as we said, of a of a greater community, and and not just a, a utilitarian too. Because there's that also that tension mm-hmm. that that he was a committed non-utilitarian. He didn't he didn't believe in just the um, progression of the individual at all. You know, at, at the cost of what it would do to the rest of society.
1: Yeah, gosh, yeah, there's a lot in that. Um, uh, in terms of, yeah, I mean, one of the the key theses of, of this book is that Menzies is best described as a, a cultural Puritan influenced by a strand of philosophy known as British idealism, And this is probably the sort of the best way to think about him. And the other aspect of that argument is that if you really want to sum up what Menzies was trying to accomplish in much of his political career, it was basically an attempt to try to revive or or remain or or keep strong what he considered to be the virtues of cultural puritanism among Australians, as opposed to them being snuffed out by the Labour Party's uh, program of socialism that as far as he was concerned it was pursuing particularly in the 1940s but yeah what do i mean by by cultural purity? what do greg and i mean by cultural puritanism well first it's not it's not a term that we made up it's it's a term that historians since the early part of the 20th century and 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 social commentators in the 19th century used to describe a particular kind of of britishness and that kind of Britishness placed a very heavy emphasis on independence mm. and individuality. And, and so it's sort of independence and individuality as opposed to what you point, said earlier, Georgina, sort of rampant individualism. Yeah. And the, the, the difference between independence and individualism is that the, the person who is independent is the person who is basically able to support themselves themselves they are not what we might call a burden on other people. So they're hardworking, they're thrifty, but yet at the same time, the independent person, once they have gotten that independence and they're able to look after themselves and their own family, then that person then looks out to the community and sees the kind of contribution that they can make in the community. And Menzies, you know, about 20 years before. John F. Kennedy famously said, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Menzies actually said pretty much something identical 20 years earlier in his sort of forgotten people's speeches. And, and, and the other aspect of cultural puritanism, yeah, as the term would imply, a, a kind of often involved a kind of respect for, for sort of God and godliness. So there was a, a kind of religious aspect to it, but it wasn't necessarily sort of evangelical enthusiasm or anything like that. You know, Menzies certainly identified as a Christian and he brought it into his speeches very often, but he he, he was not an evangelical Christian or not an evangelical or anything like that. But but there was a sense in which, you know, the, the civilization sort of hinged on a collective respect and awe for Organized religion, if you like, and, and and the contribution that Christianity in particular makes, and other, the other aspect of cultural Puritanism was a, a great reverence for the home. That that the home, not the not the workplace, uh, not not you know the parliament, not the salon or the cafe, but the home is sort of the, the where the heartbeat of the country lies, and and that's one of the reasons that I, I think Menzies. Men's that Menzies was, was was quite popular among women uh, because you know Menzies really elevated the domestic home life to something really, really noble that's something absolutely central to a well functioning society, and that really resonated to, to women in the 1940s and 50s. You know, most of whom spent most of their time basically managing a household, and so those were so many of the elements that sort of defined his cultural puritanism, uh, the, the British idealism aspect. Now, British idealism was a, was a kind of philosophy coming out of England sort of from the 1860s onwards, and, and, and it was anti-utilitarian. It, it didn't like to see individual human beings as really just self-seeking, pleasure-seeking, pain-averting machines, <laughs> I didn't like that, that at all. It tended to think it was a bit dehumanizing and, and it preferred to look at us in terms of sort of members of a collective social body. And so where there's a dignity in the individual in the sense that we are we are individuals, we are members, but at the same time, we can't understand ourselves in the same way that you can't understand a member Without understanding its relation to the whole, in that in that respect, British idealism was 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 quite sort of quite Christian. Yes, in I was a going way to say utilitarian- it links to that
0: idea of the importance of of having God of a higher of a higher being who oversees the morality and and community in society rather than than just you know, individuals trotting about living mm. their own lives potentially ignoring the the welfare of their of their fellow human beings and British idealism is sort of the I think probably less understood as part of Menzies worldview isn't it I don't I'm not sure that that has been picked up in Australian research and thought about Menzies and uh, and that's such an important driver of of his thinking but also of that of the thinking around the the late 19th century early 20th century in the in the sort of Melbourne intelligentsia in the community that that Menzies was brought up in wasn't it Steve
1: It was I mean this school of thought this sort of British idealism was incredibly powerful in the Melbourne intellectual scene right up really till sort of the end of World War II. It actually sort of really permeated Melbourne right up to the mid-20th century. And, and again, it, it sort of made Melbourne University uh, and, and the Melbourne intellectual scene more open to the idea of, of sort of a, a divine mind sort of guiding things, being behind uh, the way we ought to think about the good society and things like that. Uh, so it was, it was very, very powerful in Melbourne, particularly sort of in, in, in Menzies' sort of intellectually formative period. I mean, Menzies goes to Melbourne University in 1914, and philosophical idealism there is very, very strong. It's actually quite strong in Sydney as well, but then uh, a fellow from Scotland named John Anderson, a famous philosopher, comes over to Sydney and basically kills it off and replaces it with a, with a kind of austere, harsh materialism, so, uh, which, yeah.
0: So so tell me about about this because um, Menzies' commitment to the ideals of cultural Puritanism and uh, British idealism was in response to materialism and, and of course, he saw that yes. um, the greatest threat is communism, the manifestation of materialism as communism, and then also a concern about the mindset encouraged by affluence and technological progress. So he sees these challenges to his thinking and philosophy that's come out of that of that early 20th century Melbourne in, intelligentsia. And of course in communism he sees his sort of ultimate ideological enemy and spends a good part of his career trying to destroy that as a as a as a political force in Australia but also as a as a political force globally.
1: Yeah, that's that, you actually that's you're right. He, he spends a lot of his career trying to sort of repress and destroy the communist threat, but he also spends a lot of his career, as you say, Georgina, warning us of the other threat. And 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 for Menzies, as you say, there are, there are really two global forces at the time that really threatened to dehumanise societies. And yeah, one, as you said, and they're both two different kinds of materialism, if you like. So, one is the communistic ideology. And so, communism basically says, you know, there is no God. The most important, you know, unit of society is sort of the class or, you know, the people as a whole, not the individual, which means, you know, if you need to, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, you know, it's sort of this aversion to the rights of the individual being sort of held in the balance between, uh, you know, the the, the common good and and that kind of thing. For Menzies' communism, with its sort of philosophical, materialistic view of human beings, he thought that was dehumanising He thought it has no foundation upon which to place any idea of human dignity or the rights of individuals when they conflict with, say, some grand vision of the social good. And Menzies said, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Look at the look at the Soviet Union. Look at how people are treated. They're treated basically as nothing. You know, if if you fall foul of you know the the regime you just get sort of thrown into a gulag there's no sense that you have any dignity a- at all and and so for Menzies, that was one really dangerous kind of dehumanization a uh, sort of materialistic view of humankind that that we really needed to try to to fight but the other one that he really warned against, and this is something that really that, that, that people have been sort of warning against for thousands of years, it sort of goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the writings of, of Livy, the Roman historian. The idea that when you become prosperous, when you stop having to fight for the things that you need to live and you become comfortable, it's at that point that you're very open to basically stop caring about all. The, the, the things in life that uh, are really important. You stop caring about God. You stop caring about your duties to one another. So if you feel that if, if you're living in a society where everyone's basically doing well, everyone's basically got what they need, then you don't need anything off them. They don't need anything off you. You stop caring about one another. You, you retreat into individualism and society becomes sort of morally corrupted over time. And, and Menzies worried that the the immense prosperity that we were achieving in the West was going in in that sense to sort of morally corrupt us and and make us indifferent to sort of, the great things of culture. We just turn in on ourselves, only caring about ourselves. But and the other thing, and you mentioned it earlier, Georgina, that Menzies was really worried about. Menzies knew that science that, that you know, we are going through another industrial revolution after World War II. Technology was flying ahead again. And Menzies, you know, was was a fan of science. He was a fan of technology, but at the same time he knew that one thing we need to be careful about is is not to measure human progress in terms of technological progress. And Menzies on several occasions said, you know, just because you aeroplane, just because we're able to travel much faster, just because we're able to enjoy so many more comforts owing to technology doesn't mean that we as a human species are getting better. Doesn't mean that we're, we're becoming more moral. Doesn't mean that our spirits are becoming more and more elevated. And he really did worry that, and and this was a very common concern among yeah, you know, idealist philosophers that with the march of science and the march of technology, uh, human beings would basically just become wrapped up in technology, wrapped up in, in in the comfort that technology would bring us, and stop caring about the things of high culture, stop caring about one another, and just become a a, a society of sort of pleasure-seeking atoms. <laughs> uh, and I suppose the prov- the provocative part of our book is is essentially that if, if Menzi's great project was to stave that off. Then Menzies probably failed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, what would Menzies think of society today, where uh, we we probably are seriously grappling with a with a case of affluenza, um, which you know is a, a sort of mm-hmm. modern a modern term for for what he identified as um, as one of the the you know, concerns um, of materialism? I wanted to just unpack a bit more Menzies' concerns about. Utilitarianism, and uh, and there'd ah, be yeah. many, there'd be many in the liberal party fold or or people who are on the the centre right of politics who would would consider themselves util- utilitarianists. They uh, admire Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, but Menzies thought that utilitarianism could never be the foundation of a civilization. I think he said it was a Frankenstein monster which may yet destroy us. Can you unpack that? Why was he so concerned about utilitarianism being a Frankenstein monster? Because there's a lot, there's a lot that's that's pretty, you know, makes a lot of sense. Utilitarianism, the greatest good serves uh, serves the greatest interests, and therefore, you know, it's a it's a nice, easy way of making decisions, especially if you're in government and you're a policy maker.
1: He did, uh, and and you know, Australia has has for a long period been described as a kind of utilitarian society. Uh, some would even say, oh, it's, it's a Benthamite society. That is a very famous thesis about Australian yes. uh, culture. Although um, what we often forget is that, yes, you had people who identified as utilitarians uh, throughout Australian history, but you also had a lot of people who who were quite opposed to utilitarianism. Uh, so probably the best place to start with with your question is is to, to try to understand what Menzies meant by utilitarianism. And and he's probably using the term a lot more broadly than what we would hear it used, say, in a philosophy classroom at a university. So in a philosophy classroom, the definition of utilitarianism is, you know, the moral theory that says the right thing to do is that which brings about the greatest happiness for the greatest number, yep. or for, for Jeremy Bentham, uh, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. Um, yes, he had a now, focus on hedonism, Menzies- didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, B- Bentham was more sort of about pleasure because he thought pleasure was more scientifically measurable and, and Bentham was all about sort of trying to disentangle politics and law from religion and metaphysics. And so for Bentham, well, pleasure should be our guide because you can kind of measure pleasure. There are some pleasures that are stronger than others. So he thought it kind of was a bit more scientific than happiness, whereas Mill comes along after a while and says, look, I'm a utilitarianism, but this idea that that the human life is really all about just pursuing pleasure, Mill said, no, that's that's not right. Or at the very least, we need to distinguish between higher pleasures and lower pleasures. And but and so that's a whole philosophical debate that you're aware of, Georgina. And 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 Menzies was aware of it too. And if you want, I mean in Australia, the greatest sort of the greatest sort of popular text that argues against utilitarianism is the film The Castle. Because the castle is all about protecting the rights of the minority of the little person, even when what the little person has a right to might actually get in the way of sort of the the great the, the great good. progress of the whole. And yeah. there's that, yes, that's right. There's that there's that scene where Bud Tingle, their their barrister or their Queen's Counsel, is in court arguing the case uh, for the Kerrigans. And and the opposition side says, you know, we've got to do this because it's in the greatest interest of the greatest number. And Bud Tingwell says, ah, yes, utilitarianism, but it doesn't consider the rights of the individual. And, and so there's a sense in which Australia has this utilitarian strain in it, but it also has a strong anti-utilitarian strain in it as well. We haven't quite ourselves as a culture come to grips with whether we are or not utilitarianism. But look, for, for Menzies, utilitarianism meant a preoccupation with the practical and the measurable as opposed to things like high culture as opposed to things like you know um, the progress of human character and so for Menzies uh, to take the case of the universities which you might you might ask me the universities later I'm not sure what Menzies feared with the universities was that they would go down the utilitarian path in that they'd become totally preoccupied with science and technology and economics mm. at the expense of the humanities and Appreciate, things like that really uh, so if- <laughs> So, yeah, very prescient. Absolutely. And it's, and it's always been in Australian universities from the very beginning, it's written into the charter of Sydney University of 1850, is this tension between the pursuit of sort of the moral good and the pursuit of sort of uh, economic and industrial progress. It's it's, it's a very Australian tension in the universities built sort of baked into our university system. Um, But yeah, so when Menzies says, I'm not a utilitarianism, we need to be careful about utilitarianism. Basically, what he's saying is we need to be careful about getting into the mindset that the only thing that matters in life is money, is comfort, is technological advance, And also getting into the mindset that as human beings, all we are are individuals who pursue pleasure and flee pain, which was basically Bentham's theory of human nature. And and, and Menzi said that can only become a very dehumanizing ideology. We'll forget about our obligations to other people as human beings. We'll forget about God. We'll forget about high culture. We'll forget about Yeah, why read Shakespeare if Shakespeare doesn't do anything for the economic bottom line? We'll forget about all those kinds of things. If you don't enjoy, you
0: don't enjoy Shakespeare. You might actually learn something from Shakespeare, but if you don't enjoy it, it's not giving you pleasure. Therefore, it's futile. Would be a utilitarian perspective. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, and, and, and and well, I mean. Menzies and probably Mill would say well you might not enjoy it to begin with but if you really if you pursue it then actually you might find out over time you actually wind up enjoying Shakespeare more than you enjoy placing a bet you know. Um, Mm, mm. But um, yeah so for, for Menzies and Menzies stands in a strong tradition in Australia of criticizing utilitarian utilitarianism in in the sense of basically thinking that the only things that are valuable are things that can be measured things that can be given a, a monetary value to and that basically everything else is just fluff which in some ways is quite Australian it has to be said there is there is a kind of sort of pragmatic practical, utilitarian broadly defined streak in a lot of the Australian character and it's something that people have been noticing since probably the 1820s when they come over here and they say wow you Aussies all all you want to talk about is wool and money Uh, there are other things in life and it it probably makes sense when you're dealing with it with a country settled by convicts and then settled by people who basically came over here to make money yeah what kind of Culture is that going to create? And it was a
0: and, a and a harsh environment. They were unused to. They didn't, you know, the settlers to Australia didn't know how to handle a, a country of such extremities of extreme heat, extreme rain, um, extreme drought. Uh, it, it was a it was a harsh environment to make money. In you could yeah. make money, but but only if you were probably particularly utilitarian. I do want to ask you about Menzies' view of the role of universities because. Menzies had a deep, abiding passion for education, and an absolutely not a utilitarian perspective on education. The, yeah. the renowned Australian educationalist Leonie Kramer said that um, nowhere were Menzies' liberal conservative principles better expressed than in his views about education. Uh, he he very much directed a lot of his political capital and energy to to transforming universities in Australia the Murray report opened up a huge amount of Commonwealth funding for universities and the numbers of students who were able to study in ter- the tertiary sector uh, tripled I think during during the from the beginning of Menzies term to, to the end of his government in 1966 um, particularly of course the education of women as well um, but mm-hmm. he, he saw universities as being places where individuals could have a well-rounded education, and that was that sort of idea that you weren't there, just there to learn a vocation. Although actually, Menzies education himself—he he studied to be studied law, and did end up with a, quite a vocational education. But but that you go to university to become a, a a better better human being, a better member of society, someone who is able to have. Um, to think about big issues and and contribute to debates and and actually enrich your mind and your humanity with learning for learning's sake for the sake of 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 being human and uh, I wonder I wonder today whether he would look at Australian universities and feel they'd lived up to his aspirations which you know he had committed. Millions and millions of government funding at the time in the in the nineteen sixty mm-hmm. late fifties, um, early sixties to to universities such as La Trobe, to the University mm. of New England. These were universities that were created because of the funding changes that Menzies introduced.
1: Yeah, I um. I mean, people often ask me, you know, what would Menzies think of all sort of the funding cuts to the universities that have sort of taken place over the last thirty years, and and people sort of expect me to say, oh, Menzies would have been really sort of Menzies would be really opposed to funding to, to sort of the, the low level of funding to universities today. Well, I mean, Menzies may have been opposed. I mean, you've got to be, all you always have to be, very careful when we sort of ask, you know, what would a man born in 1894 think of, you know, yeah. policies that it's, came into place in the late 1980s? It's of
0: course a hypothetical. It's <laughs> <laughs> we have of course, no, of course. We really have do no idea, anyway, but we're going to give it a good, red hot go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. This is, this is, yes. Now, it may be the case actually that Menzies would not have liked the initial funding cuts to universities in the late 80s. I mean, I don't know. But here's the thing. Menzies, if Menzies was to look at the universities today, I have very little doubt that Menzies would not be advocating greater funding to universities because Menzies would look at the universities and say things like this. He'd say the bureaucracies are too big. He would say there are too many students at the universities. He would say quite a few courses being taught at the university shouldn't be taught in the universities. They should either just be things that you learn on the job or they should be taken over to the TAFEs. And so Menzies would look at the universities and, and, and sort of have all sorts of problems with them that would that would sort of probably lead him to say no I don't think we actually ought to be giving more money to the universities. I think we actually ought to be radically reforming them, probably lifting the standards required to actually get into university in the first place. I mean we remember that Menzies was was one of the most generous benefactors of universities in, in Australia's history. He loved the universities. But at the same time, and Menzies, of course, uh, gave free uh, university education to thousands upon thousands of Australians through his Commonwealth scholarships. But the important thing is that Menzies' Commonwealth scholarships, which saw many people from all sorts of economic backgrounds go through university, were merit-based they were merit-based. You had to get good marks in order to get them. And that was the big difference between what Menzies did and what Whitlam did. Whitlam just said, it's all free for everyone, merit, you know, <laughs> whether you've whether you merited or not. And, of course, that policy um, is eventually uh, discarded by a Labor government as well. But Menzies, Menzies was able to give generous funding to universities and give out many, many Commonwealth scholarships to the point where if you were a really good student, you were, you were going through university for free. One of the reasons he was able to do that is because not many people were going through universities. This was an age where university was a meritocratic institution. You got in based on on a sterling sort of academic record. And so it was a kind of, I don't like to use the word elitist. I prefer the word meritocratic, but... But Menzies' vision of the university was a meritocratic institution. It was not the kind of institution, the way we look at it today, well, you know, you, you go to high school, then you, if you don't go into a trade, then you go to university. Menzies like, no, no, in actual fact, very few will go into university because university is really, really rigorous. And so Menzies would look at the universities today, and the first thing he'd, he'd ask is, why do so many people have degrees? Why are there so many universities and why there's so many people on the campuses? That 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 that's, that's not right, Menzies would say, and so he, he would he would want massive reform of the universities. Uh, but the, but the other thing about Menzies' attitude to the universities is, I mean, Menzies of course famously sort of ex, expanded the funding to the universities, and that was something going on around much of the world and that was in response again to technological advances that were taking place and we needed to put more funding into into the sciences and engineering and so Menzies certainly saw the, the universities as sort of an engine of sort of an industrial revolution taking place
0: well there was a nation building um, aspect to this wasn't there Steve yes. he he I mean, we were a young nation, um, at least modern, modern since the modern Australian settlement. We were a young nation, and he saw a, an educated workforce as essential to to building up our our potential, uh, building up our ability to develop private enterprise to to be independent but prosperous.
1: Yeah, and but also, as you said earlier, Georgina, to to cultivate the sort of the humanities, the studia humani- humanitatis, the study of humanity, what, what Matthew Arnold, the great 19th century thinker called you know, sweetness and light, the best thoughts that have ever been thought. For Menzies, you want science, you want technology, you want engineering in the universities, but all of that needs to sort of be sort of informed by, sort of animated by the humanities, sort of the study of Shakespeare, the study of poetry, the study of, of great ideas, and, and for Menzies, universities, need to be the kind of, not just the technological, scientific motor of society, but they also need to be kind of the the cultural hub of society. He wanted them to be communities. He wanted them to be oases of high culture, where public servants, lawyers, politicians after you know, a hard week, they can go to the university on the weekend and hear a lecture on Shakespeare, hear a lecture on, on poetry, maybe hear a lecture on philosophy or, or something like that. He's, he really saw them as intrinsic to the cultural life uh, of the community. And so he, he, he certainly saw them as, as institutions that, that must, to some extent, Pursue practical ends like science, technology, economics, and engineering, and things like that. But all of this was supposed to be informed by, you know, the humanities. And 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 some some would argue that that Menzies was was maybe a bit naive about this. Maybe he really underestimated the state of the humanities in the 40s and 50s, and they were increasingly heading over towards a Marxist direction. Certainly by the end of his life. He, he he saw that that had happened, and, and and there are hints of it in the 1940s. He could he could see that that left that left wing radical left wing ideology was becoming more and more powerful in the universities, turning humanities departments or turning them away from being sort of institutions that would sort of. Uh, perpetuate the best of Western civilization, and, and merely into institutions that basically spent their time critiquing and criticizing Western civilization, deconstructing the West rather than trying to reconstruct it, if you like.
0: Yes, and I think there's been a decline into homogeneity of views in um, across the academy, which which Menzies would rue. He would have wanted mm. a much more liberal exchange of ideas, with, without fear of of. Uh, of cancellation, as as is often <laughs> the case these days. But Steve, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, and we're definitely going to have to have you back on for another another round on the afternoon light podcast. We do have you at, appearing at our conference in november presenting a paper on on menzies and his commitment to education which i'm very much looking forward to uh so we will have more discussions then but thank you so much for joining us uh from lockdown sydney and me here in lockdown melbourne for uh, a wonderful discussion on the forgotten menzies and um, i really appreciate your time
1: well thank you very much georgina it's been a pleasure and i really love the work that you're doing
0: The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.